When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter at Columbia University. I teach linguistics and, for some reason, some other things such as music history and philosophy and sometimes even American studies. I have written Our Magnificent Bastard Tongue, The Untold History of English, more recently The Language Hoax, Why the World Looks the Same in Any Language, which is now out in paperback. And in January, there'll be Talking Back, Talking Black Truths About America's Lingua Franca. In any case, I am the host of Lexicon Valley, and my guest this week is John Simpson, who has written a memoir of his career as chief editor of, after a while, the Oxford English Dictionary. The word detective searching for the meaning of it all at the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, there's what we could call a certain synergy here in that I have another book coming out myself in about five minutes called Words on the Move. And a central thesis in that book is that a dictionary only captures a Polaroid snapshot of what language really is. I hate to say that I could almost be seen as being a little hard on dictionaries in the book, although, as you might imagine, I love them and have them and get lost in them and smell their pages. American Heritage Dictionary, by the way, I love the addition of color and, as always, the Indo-European and Semitic roots in those appendixes. Yes, appendices, but I've never liked that. But you guys at American Heritage, you've got to work up a more compelling odor on your pages. I need more. Anyway, a dictionary is an odder thing than we always consider. We have to put ourselves in the mind of a very bright 10-year-old who I had the occasion to ask sometime last year. Molly, do you know what an encyclopedia is? She had no idea. And this is, frankly, a hyper-educated, upper-middle-class girl who knows what just about everything else is. But encyclopedia, I might as well have been saying, shawm. And we had that conversation right in front of my set of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yes, physical set. Yes, it takes up a lot of space. And no, I never touch them, but they're staying in my house so that my daughters will use. Anyway, Molly would wonder why there needed to be a book with all those things recorded in it. We could all pull back and ask similar kinds of questions about a dictionary. And I don't just mean that now a dictionary can be online. I mean, the very mission of a dictionary is actually not as intuitive if you start all over again, as we might think. A book full of definitions of words in our own language, you could ask, don't we know what the words we use mean? Or why doesn't a dictionary just have the hard or obscure 
words. You can probably hear that I'm segueing into the first question for my guest, John Simpson, formerly of the Oxford English Dictionary. And that question, John, I want to get into this like stepping into a, a hot bathtub. How did dictionaries begin? Dictionaries began in English, at least, in the early 17th century. Uh, the first dictionary that we call an English dictionary is Thomas Cordray's Table Alphabetical. And as you were saying, it's not uh, a dictionary of the whole language. Uh, at that time, it was more or less a sort of glossary dictionary. It was a dictionary of hard words. Um, it was to help people who were reading some of the sort of great flow of new literature that was coming in from travelers' tales around the world, or if they'd been um, reading translations of the classics or something, and they came across words for mythical beasts and things that they didn't know, and they wanted something that was published, uh, a book that they could use to help them understand it. And so that's what the first dictionaries were. Um, they were quite small books. Thomas Corder went into several editions, and there were some early, other early 17th century dictionaries, which all had to be several pages, of several, but their word count was terribly important. Even in those days, word count was really important. Um, and so uh, I think Cordry had about two and a half thousand words. Um, the next ones always said, oh, you know, we've got more words, more this, more that. And the dictionaries gradually grew. They were still hard words. They started adding in maybe slang words later on in the 17th century. And it's not until you get to about 1865, Elisha Cole's English Dictionary, that you start having a dictionary that we'd almost recognize as being uh, a dictionary like today, with words from the whole of the language rather than just uh, the difficult ones that actually people might need to look up. And that's the sort of the way dictionaries have gone. They've sparked out in different areas. In the 19th century, American dictionaries tended to become more encyclopedic than British English dictionaries. So you have names for entries for places, and, that, and that's a tradition that's carried on. And some English dictionaries are closing the circle and going back to and adding uh, proper names as well. So, yeah, the dictionary has grown and developed over the centuries. Um, it's become online a sort of massive reference tool in terms of the OED at least and, and the big American dictionaries and um, your question um, deep down was does a dictionary need to include the whole language um, yeah and yeah why does it even as a kid I used to think do I really need a book that tells me what like means yeah and you, know, you just kind of move on that's rational you don't know who's going to be looking at what in the dictionary so I mean you may not be a, a very competent speaker of English and you may want a word that an ordinary regular speaker of English finds quite straightforward but but from the historical dictionary point of view, we're not just giving definitions of words. Um, we're giving specific dated chronological historical evidence of when that use of that word was first used. And that's as relevant for any word, whether it's the most common word or, or whether it's quite a rare word in the language. And you could even say that if you're going to take that etymological approach, and that I find completely intuitive that you would want to get in every single word, it would seem to almost be organically part of it to have your definitions worked out of what the word means, especially since words tend to have multiple definitions, except it seems that what originally came was doing the definitions, and then the idea was to do etymologies as well, or do I have that wrong? Well, back in the 17th century, it was a more of a tradition of etymological dictionaries without definitions before there was a defining dictionaries. So the two started to come together. The people writing the defining dictionaries made use of this um, great European tradition of etymological dictionaries, Skinner and people like that, Junius. Um, they pulled their information. It was really quite technical information, so they pulled little bits of it into their dictionaries because they didn't want to frighten the horses who were just reading to understand the meaning of words. We didn't have a science of comparative philology at the time. We didn't have a theory 
for um, the interrelatedness of many um, Indo-European languages. You knew that a word in Latin might look like a word in French, might look like a word in English, but there wasn't a theory for tying them all together, a historical theory. And so these dictionaries started putting in occasional, they'd say, this is your English word, here's the Anglo-Saxon word, or here's the German word, or here's the Latin word. Um, uh, they didn't have pronunciations in the 17th century either. Um, that came later. Um, so these components just came together gradually. It's quite interesting to study them, but not everybody wants to. It's an, um, no, I think, I think they do, and your book actually helps make sense of the whole story. It's a rather eccentric story, and now we have these wonderful things called dictionaries, and you would assume that they had always been like that, when it isn't so. And it's interesting to dig back into the really elderly ones, which I've done some of, and you have done quite a bit more of than me, and you get things like in the Bailey's Universal Etymological Dictionary, spider, yep. an insect well-known. And you kind of think to yourself, what would the point? of that bee. Yeah, that's right. I mean, he has that for a number of insects and, and things that he doesn't really want to uh, give a detailed definition. He's not unusual. I mean, Bailey's Dictionary, 18, uh, 1721, was a massively important English dictionary, the one before um, Samuel Johnson's. And uh, he felt, I think, as, as you were saying earlier, that bee will know what a spider is, so why do I waste my time spending you know, three lines telling you how many legs it's got and what its Latin name was? Not that it had a Latin name at, those time, at that time, probably. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, that was a sort of it's a bit lazy. I mean, why include the word at all if you're just going to say that, a kind of insect? And I think possibly it wouldn't have sounded quite as dismissive as we read it today. It maybe sounded a little bit more, um, slightly more specific. Reasonable. Oh, uh, certainly. If I were writing a dictionary and I didn't have any model to use, I would stick in all sorts of things like that, just assuming, well, everybody knows what it is, so now I can make some little comment about it. Yeah, well, they were, all, they were experimenting. They were seeing what was happening. They were seeing what the audience wanted. They were being pushed by publishers to put some new feature in, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, things don't change an awful lot these days. It's interesting. You have an insight in the book that I actually didn't completely understand your explanation of, and I'm glad that I've got you here to explain, which is that whenever the dictionary comes up, frankly, in my experience, whenever linguistics comes up, there's always somebody who will say, oh, I just love words. And the, John, oh, God, John, I'm so sorry. I'm sitting here doing a mock British accent and you're British. I'm so sorry. I did not mean anything. Was that a British accent? Not that it was a good one. Yeah. So it's my version of the person at the party. I thought it was someone on Star Trek or something. <laughs> Somebody always says, oh, I just love words. Yep. And yeah, I always kind of like them. And there are all sorts of things that you get from your book, such as inkling. And inkling, you always think, well, it must have to do with some little dot of ink. That's what I thought, because I don't really care about that word. But actually, I learned from your book that inkle used to mean to whisper. And so it's an inkling. That's neat. That's right. A little inkling, a little whisper, a little hint of something. Anyway, you have this insight in it where you say that you hate it when people who are seeking to work on a dictionary say that they're people who love words, that lexicographers should not be people who love words. Please defend. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I find usually the people that say they love words are saying it without really thinking about it. They just have some sort of colorful or sentimental, schmaltzy um, view of, rosy view of words without really thinking about uh, the technicalities of, of it. They, it's often the strange odd words they like, and I don't really feel that's language study. I feel that's the sort of uh, uh, sort of freak show stuff. So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in the, the core, the small words of the language, um, the old words of the language, especially 16th, 17th, 18th century words of the 
language. So we have to analyze language. We don't have to sort of purr at it. Um, so when we're looking for people to work on the dictionary, we want people who've got a slightly more hard-edged view um, of language. But, I mean, if, if that's not your view, then that's fine. You're, you're welcome to it. So, yeah, so it's not the overlap between word lovers and somebody who would be good at the job is not as total as we might assume. We, we find it a bit of a disjunct. And I think part of the reason that um, we might have a sense of lexicography as a word lover sitting at the desk is indeed a movie like the one that you mentioned. I think these days it's more the book that on these shores is called The Professor and the Madman that gives people this image. But mm-hmm. if you want a couple of generations back, it was the, the Howard Hawks movie, Ball of Fire. It's Ball of Fire, yeah. And you have Gary Cooper, who, you know, as usual by that time, is, is playing much younger than he was. And he's supposed to be a junior lexicographer. <laughs> he's surrounded by all of these dear old character actors who were modeled apparently on the Disney Seven Dwarfs. And they're all just sitting there and it's in black and white and they're doing this charmingly musty work. I must admit that is exactly what I think of when lexicography comes up because I like that movie. Uh, which way would you say it? Two and two is five. Two and two are five. Two and two makes five. <laughs> Professor Potts covers English. <laughs> did you hear the question, Potts? I did. As the uh, verb is always governed by the subject, the correct answer is two and two are five. Potts. Oh, no, Potts. Correct for a grammarian, perhaps, but not for a mathematician. Two and two are four. (laughs) That's a good one. It's awful we're surrounded by stereotypes. I mean, I was using the book to some extent, I hope, to try to break down some of these stereotypes because I've been faced with them all the 40 years I've been on the dictionary and any other lexicographer has as well. So, uh, yeah, and it's too easy to fall into the stereotypical view. And actually, lexicography is writing about discovering about your language and, and your culture and your society and all the societies that have used English over time. So it's a, it's a fascinating subject, really. How would you say things are different in terms of the general kind of mise-en-scene of that kind of black and white, you know, dwarfy character actors sitting around with, with cards? What what would the stereotype be now if somebody were going to stereotype what lexicography looks like? Yeah, I mean, I felt that wasn't too far off the stereotype when I joined the OED in the 1970s. I mean, you could certainly look back to the 1960s and see black and white pictures of people sitting around on, on desks <laughs> and, uh, and doing that sort of thing. At the time, you were dealing with a dictionary that was static. You had a sort of marmorial um, marble slabs of the 19th century Oxford English Dictionary that we were uh, updating. Good word. Um, but nowadays, we've got a dynamic database which changes um, not necessarily every day, um, as far as the public's concerned, but every uh, every three months when it's updated. Um, any information that you send in, the editors can find its way more or less straight away online. We used to have people, there was an American academic uh, who sent some earlier references to expressions from uh, Shakespeare and other Elizabethan dramatists into the OED in 1957. And I was at my desk, I think it must have been sometime in the late 1980s, and another letter came from him, and after a gap of about 30 years, and he said very, very politely, you know, I realize that it's not your priority at the moment to include early examples from Elizabethan um, drama, but I wondered whether you still had my material from uh, that I sent you 30 years ago. And so I knew where we kept those sort of letters and that sort of information. So I went next door into a, uh, we had a, a cardboard box file, and there was his letter filed by date. It was not difficult to find. And it was sort of true that nothing had happened to these things because it wasn't part of the remit of the supplement to the OED, which we were working on 
at the time, which is mainly uh, 19th and 20th century changes to the language. So we had the material. I was able to find it within five minutes, and I had to write back to the guy and said, no, yes, at some point we will be looking into it. But we didn't have a project for updating the dictionary at that stage. So, you know, what, what could we do? But there were a lot of people who started thinking the OED in the 1970s and 80s was a great thing that was never going to change. And so the fascinating thing over the next 10, 15 years was actually making it change, putting it onto a computer and putting it into a position where it could be updated and actually you know, rejoin the real world. Now that you're mentioning, quote unquote, putting it all on the computer, as you entertainingly describe what you humans originally thought the task was going to be, and then the internet, etc. I want to ask a question about first attestations, because something that I was shocked by was that it's turned out, now that the internet can show us first attestations that we never dreamed of, that frankly, really, if you were going to speak sloppily, half of the things that were attributed to Joyce, that Joyce was supposedly the first person to have used, have been found before. 40%, but to, you know, sex it up, half have been found to go before him. How vastly would you say that the Internet revises these claims? Because some of this gets into Shakespeare, and I devoted a show to Shakespeare some weeks ago and was gratified that I got um, very little hate mail, although watch it now start, where we were discussing the issue of whether the language should be adjusted. But a related Shakespeare issue is the idea that he created so many of the words that we first see in his work. So is the internet basically turning upside down our whole notion of who was first to use certain words? It is doing that, but it's also refocusing our attention on what really is creative about Joyce or about Shakespeare or whatever. It's stripping away some of those expressions that we rather thoughtlessly allocated to them because they happen to have been 30, 40 years ago the first recorded use. But now we've got access to all sorts of Irish uh, 19th century newspapers, Google Books, enormous amount of uh, the early English books online project containing more or less everything printed before 1700, much of which is searchable. And for any word that you look at, you can probably find 50% of the time, you can find something earlier in, in literature than the original dictionary found. And that's because the range of sources has expanded so much. Uh, there's a tendency for the old dictionary to, and for the dictionary's readers to read the classics, read things that they could get access to, um, which were often, um, you know, editions of Jacobean drama or or um, 18th century picturesque novels or whatever. Um, and so those words found their way into the dictionary. But nowadays, there's a much broader range of material that you can look at just by searching. I mean, uh, American newspapers from, from 1800 onwards, the, um, I don't know, it's, there's just so much out there, so much material out there. It was all out there before, it just wasn't accessible. And now it's much more accessible. And so it is starting to change our view of uh, the creativity of particular authors. But I, mean, I think that's good. It's giving us a clearer picture. Uh, And they may well have been responsible for popularizing terms, but not necessarily for creating them all the time. Sure. Yeah, there's a difference. By the way, John, I want to just throw something in there. And this may have already been flagged, but you have a discussion of of gay as as referring to homosexual and how it can be kind of elusive to identify just when it started to mean that. I'm not sure whether this is in the system or not, but I happen to know a factoid that is the sort of thing that you only happen to have noticed if you have some insane hobby. And for me, it is um, the history of American musical theater. Okay. Cole Porter has a lyric 
for a musical called Let's Face It in 1941. The song is called Farming. I imagine he probably wrote the words in 1940, but officially would be 1941. And there's a reference to somebody's bull being beautiful, but he's gay. The idea being that he doesn't want to, I guess, have sex with cows. And so that, to me, has always been the earliest attestation of the word gay used indisputably in that way. And I'm not sure if that's in the system, if it already is, then this has no bearing on anything. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember it, but I mean, that's what we can do these days. Now that when somebody comes up with an idea, we can then assess it much more quickly than we could in the old days. So yeah, make sure the dictionary knows about it. Oh, you've told me, haven't you? Um, <laughs> um, okay, um, I'll have a look at that and we'll see where it goes. Singing while the raking bringing home the bacon makes them feel more glamorous and more gay. They tell me cows when they're feeling milky All give cream when the milk by Wilkie Oh, farming is so charming, they all say I want to ask you one more thing. What is the real meaning, real in quotation marks, of transpire? I enjoyed this discussion in the book. I mean, the historical meaning is to uh, permeate through from one, um, I mean, of water, for example, um, or sweat, to permeate through a layer. If something transpires, then uh, it's a, it was a word that was quite common in um, 16th, 17th century science, from the Latin breathing through or permeating through something. I mean, nowadays, if something transpires, it happens. I mean, it's quite a shift away from that. The first person recorded in the OED, as I mentioned in the book, to use this modern sense of transpire was the wife of John Adams, the same American president. But I think that's going to be predated once we get to revise the term. It's just I'm not there to do it now. That's interesting. What would you tell the person who says, I consult the dictionary so that I know what words are supposed to mean? What do you say to that person? I'd say you consult the dictionary to see what dictionary writers, uh, how they've analyzed the language and, and seen how people use words, not what they're supposed to mean. That's not what dictionaries are trying to do these days. I mean, the same with linguists describing language. We're trying to say, this is what we see out there. This is how people use the language. It's not good, not bad. It might be standard. It might be non-standard. But here it is, take it or leave it. But we're not going to tell you how to speak. <laughs> well, I should say that I enjoyed in your book on a personal level, your mentioning of things such as the fact that the word blueprint used to be pronounced blueprint, because that's the way compound words work, where the stress shifts backwards. And I did a show about that. And I enjoyed seeing that lexicographers such as you are conscious of the fact that there's always that backshift. In any case, John, thank you very much for appearing on the show. Thank you very much for your book, which you succeeded in making, as you intended, a portrait of lexicography that's beyond the sensational. And so you really give a sense of what it's like. And you managed to do that without making it sound dull, frankly, or trivial. And this is something you pull off that is very difficult. Books about words often start out wonderful, but you get tired of one word after another. It's very hard to write about etymology in a way where you can actually get from the front to the back of the book. Your book isn't about etymology, but that's a lot of it. You actually manage to keep the reader going despite the fact that you've written a book about words. I, I salute that effort. It's not something that I could pull off at all. John, thank you very much for this. Oh, that's great. It was good fun. Thanks for the talk. Tell us your thoughts about the show. 
You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at Lexicon Valley. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. This show was edited by Afim Shapiro. I'm John McWhorter. Thank you so much for listening, and see you back here in two weeks. Listener.